You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has thousands upon thousands of retail locations all over the United States, and they offer great batteries, right? Now, I got a buddy who is kind of a car nut, a truck nut, and he told me that, I guess on the research that he's done for car batteries, Interstate Battery car batteries and truck batteries are some of the highest quality, most reliable truck batteries that they have on the market. I don't know anything about it. It's just what my buddy told me. So if you're looking for a new car or truck battery, you need to go to your local retail, uh, interstate battery retail shop and go pick one up because I guess they're badass. So I know I have one in my truck. Other than that, if you have TV remote controls, Interstate Batteries makes a battery for that. They make batteries for your rangefinder, your trail cameras, and basically any other electrical device, for the most part, that you use uh, while hunting or fishing or being outside. They also have a whole bunch of other little knick-knack products, too, like uh, uh, my buddy Dan Spano. Uh, he is uh, a manager for his family's interstate battery retail location he got me some of these cool flashlights that have switches on them one of them looks like a lantern so they have a whole bunch of that stuff too if you want to find out more information about the kind of batteries that interstate batteries makes head on over to interstatebatteries.com or visit your local retail store Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, Merry Christmas and welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. My name is Dan Johnson. I'm your host. And today we have a very interesting episode. We're going to be joined by Oren Jones. He is a wildlife biologist out of the Clear Lake office of the Department of Natural Resources. And uh, today's topic is all about, you guessed it, 
waterfowl. And um, I'm, we're going to talk about habitat. We're going to talk about uh, research that uh, his department does on the habitat, on the migration of the Mississippi flyway that Iowa falls into. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, hunting regulations. We're going to talk about the zones. We're going to talk about bag limits and how they determine how all this works, along with how you can become involved in how some of those uh, regulations uh, happen and how uh, your voice matters in you know the seasons the bag limits and uh, what you guys are seeing while you know out in the field with waterfowl Uh, we talk about banding we talk about some of the species here in Iowa so overall if you're a waterfowl nut this is a great episode for you to just kick back and relax to and uh get a little more information because uh, I self-admittedly am not a waterfowl guy. I don't duck hunt. I wish I could. I wish I could do more, but I don't. And uh, I tell you right now, uh, I, I gained a lot of insight and information and knowledge from this episode with Oren. So hopefully you guys uh, enjoy this episode. But before we get into the episode, we got to do a commercial. And as always, we're talking about Bondurant Custom Furniture. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity to go to BondurantCustomFurniture.com, that's their website, uh, and as the, the name implies, these guys are out of Bondurant, Iowa, uh, these guys make some fascinating uh, custom furniture pieces, and uh, go to their website, BondurantCustomFurniture.com, and then go to their gallery uh, it, within that uh, website, and just take a look at all the custom pieces that these guys make. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, the cool thing that these guys do is they take old whiskey barrels, they refurbish them, and they make them into chairs and tables and coffee tables and works of art even lighting fixtures Uh, what these guys do is pretty impressive so if you want to find out more information about the custom furniture that Bondurant custom furniture uh, makes and puts out you need to go to their website BondurantCustomFurniture.com give them a call talk to them if there is a custom piece that you want done uh, these guys will uh, definitely hear you out so BondurantCustomFurniture.com other than that it is the Christmas season I just want to say real quick thank you a big thank you to everyone who is listening to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast man huge shout out to Patrick McKinney the publisher of the magazine uh, and his family for uh, you know taking a risk on this podcast and and uh, helping me get it started and, and putting it out and uh, under the the Iowa Sportsman brand. So if you guys want a lot of cool information, a lot of cool stories, a lot of cool reading material, you can go to iowasportsman.com and take a look at the blogs that they have there, all the, the, the digital articles online, lots of great information there. The magazine as well, uh, you can go to the website and uh, subscribe to the magazine. So you're getting it from the podcast side, you're getting it from the website, the blog side, and then you're also getting it from the magazine as well. So you have the uh, possibilities of getting a lot of great content, all different content from three great sources, all under the Iowa Sportsman brand. And uh, man, I'm telling you what, it's just, uh, it's awesome to support an Iowa company as well. So other than that, Hopefully everybody has a great Christmas. Uh, Let's just get into today's Waterfowl Podcast with Oren Jones. 
All right, from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, today I am joined by Oren Jones. He is a waterfowl biologist. Oren, how you doing, man? Good morning, Dan. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing good. We're here recording this on December 23rd. Have you gotten all your, all of your uh, Christmas shopping done? Oh, yep. I think I'm in good shape. Oh, how good. about you? Oh, man. I, t- <laughs> I had a family. Uh, I'm, I'm horrible at Christmas. I'll be honest. It's not like I'm not a presents guy. I don't like to give them. I don't like to, you know, you know, it's fun for the kids, but for me, I just don't, I'm not, I'm not into the gift giving portion of it. I just love the food and the family and playing cards and hanging out kind of thing. So we have a kind of, I guess it's called a white elephant or something like that, where you, you just get like 20 bucks and you buy, you buy something and you put all the gifts in the middle and uh, then at random, people draw out of there. You can't draw your own. You have to draw one of the other ones. So my gift to the guy, the guy gift was a 12-pack of beer, peanuts, and deer salami that I got literally 20 minutes before the Christmas party started. So that is, <laughs> that's how I roll. Sounds like a good tradition. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So today um that's one thing that i today's topic waterfowl is something that i'm not familiar with i've been waterfowl hunting a couple of times uh once for uh, geese and once for ducks and uh, mallards specifically and uh didn't have very much success just because i was so green went one time kind of a one and done and that's something that i self-admittedly don't know anything about as far as waterfowl habitat while waterfowl hunting and so i thought it'd be a good idea to get uh someone that knows a lot about waterfowl on the show we're going to today we're going to talk about habitat we're going to talk about uh, the research that you've done to determine the uh the the hunting seasons the bag limits um and and all that stuff but uh the first question that i want to ask you is as a water waterfowl biologist what do you do Oh, this this is a high level question, but what do you do on a, a weekly, monthly type of annual uh, schedule? Sure. So I kind of divide my think of my job as having three, or maybe four primary components. The first, and perhaps most applicable to most of the listeners, is harvest regulation, harvest management. Waterfowl are a migratory species, and as such, they're subject to um, international treaties that then gives the ultimate legal jurisdiction to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And we can get into this later on, but it requires additional levels of coordination and complexity than resident species of wildlife, such as ringneck pheasants or white-tailed deer. So a lot of what I do is coordinating with both federal and other state biologists to set seasons up and down the Mississippi Flyway and then applying that here in Iowa. Some other things we work on are population habitat monitoring here within the state. So these consist of uh, breeding, sur- breeding surveys during the spring and summer, going out capturing and banding birds to get information on their demographic rates, and then fall and winter uh, migration surveys as well. And then finally, a third major part of my job is actual applied research, working with academic institutions to better understand what is going on with waterfowl and wetlands here in the state. And we have some 
excellent research projects going on now. Awesome. So what, do you guys work a lot with uh, some of the state colleges to have uh, like college students? This is just a random question, but college students yeah. involved in this uh, research, these research projects? Yes. Yeah, we do. We have an excellent relationship with Iowa State University in particular. Okay. And what does, uh, what does that kind of entail? Well, what it is, it's, it, it allows us to um, conduct cooperative research. So in that case, I will work with a professor down there and we'll be principal investiga- investigators and come up with an idea that's relevant and it's significant to, to our resources here in Iowa. And then that professor will eventually hire oftentimes a graduate student who's going to be the real technical expert and really devote basically years of their life to answering this question. In the DNR, we often provide the logistical support and help the student conduct the field work. And the professor provides the academic side, and the student provides the technical expertise to conduct the analysis and then publish papers on their findings. So it really benefits um, all parties involved. And that's really cool. Um, okay, so you do a lot of uh, research and uh, manage projects. What else do you do? Well, we, we go out in the field every so often and get our hands on birds or, or count birds. Um, and just, you know, every so often, would it, you never know what's going to come up in the world of a wildlife biologist. There, there might be a disease outbreak you have to address or, or help some of our local regional staff with their planning or habitat management, too. Gotcha. So, you know, when I was a kid, I said to myself, oh, man, I want to be a wildlife biologist. I want to go out, and my job is going to be awesome because all I'm going to do is just uh, – I'm not even going to be in, behind a desk at all. I just want to uh, go and count deer and, you know, be outside and do all those things. Is that what your job is, is out in the, the swamps counting ducks all day, or are you behind a desk a lot as well? Well, I probably spend – half or better of my time in the office and another quarter of my time traveling uh, up and down the flyway to meetings or cooperative projects. And then I would say a quarter or less of my time is actually out, out in the field. Gotcha. All right. So you mentioned the Mississippi flyway there. Uh, for someone like me who doesn't know the range of that, is that the entire state of Iowa or do you, do you have to go outside the, the borders to do some of your research? Oh yeah. So, the Fish and Wildlife Service divides the continental U.S. up into four administrative units within which they set federal frameworks for hunting seasons. Iowa Falls within the Mississippi Flyway, which is four, comprised of 14 states. It goes from Minnesota south to Louisiana, then east over to Alabama and north to Ohio, and then we actually include our um, Canadian provinces north, so from Ontario to Saskatchewan. Oh, so it's it's an administrative unit with um, provincial, state, provincial, and international boundaries, and of course, but it's meant to mimic the biological flyway of birds, basically north to south through the continental U.S. Gotcha. So, um, do you? Do you travel like to Canada and uh, to Louisiana, Alabama, Ohio every single year, or is that broken up by state and then you're in communication with other um, uh, DNR representatives from different states? 
Yeah, so um, I have counterparts. There's, there's basically an analogous position to mine each of the other states or provinces. And we work together as a group called the Mississippi Flyway Technical Section to guide hunting season harvest, harvest management within the Mississippi Flyway. But then, so then we do have biannual meetings where we travel throughout the flyway to meet and discuss manners. And then we also have projects. I've been fortunate enough to ban birds in northern Canada and uh, southern Louisiana. So it is also beneficial to see, see these birds in the different habitat types they utilize throughout their life cycle. Yeah. One thing that I've, I've always found interesting is the, the, uh, the banding of the birds, right? The documentation of the, you know, the travel patterns and whatnot. What, what is, what does a banding session entail? Well, so basically what you are trying to do with banding is mark a representative subsample of the population. And then we get information back from those bands, not just on where, where the bird was recovered, but also if you ban enough birds, you get information on really informative demographic rates such as harvest rate and survival rate. So it's a little different. To capture birds differs a little bit based on time of year and species involved. Here in Iowa, we focus on three species. We capture Canada geese in June and July when they're flightless with their young, and we, we do a very good job. We probably ban about 4,000 Canada geese. Wow. here in Iowa, and it's uh, more a drive trapping um, where you gently surround the geese and um, herd them into either a net or surround them with panels. The second species we, we then banned are morning doves. We banned about 2,000 morning doves on an annual basis across the state, and um, morning doves are banded, or excuse me, are captured through bait trapping and small wire traps. Uh, you catch anywhere a good catch would be anywhere from 15 to 50 birds in in one session sometimes you don't get any though and basically what you do is you put out put out some form of bait to acclimate the birds to a trap site and then to the traps themselves and then you eventually set the traps so the birds can enter the trap and knock it out okay and uh, then wood duck banding occurs in the late summer and it's kind of similar to morning dove trapping, but of course it's associated with wetlands, where again we're using bait to attract the birds and to acclimate them to a capture site. Oftentimes it's a um, a metal a metal trap, metal metal wire, self-constructed com- custom-constructed trap of some sort, where we kind of acclimate or train the birds to going in and out, and then eventually. Um, set the trap in a way that the birds can go in and not get out, and you then uh, then arrive at dawn or dusk and hopefully have a catch of birds and, and process process them and put bands on those that um, that are good candidates. Awesome. Now, I, I hear guys, or, you know, uh, as a waterfowl hunter, you shoot a banded, uh, wa- you know, a banded duck or a banded goose. It's a big thing, right? You know, these guys have their, their, their calls uh, just... Or, you know, ordained with uh, uh, bands that they've shot throughout out the years, and I guess it's a pretty big thing. Um, and they can, from my understanding, they can call those in uh, 
and find out where it was banded, find out more information, and then at the same time, where that harvest information goes to help your data. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. But one point of one distinction is that it's all done through the uh, through a website now. Okay. There's no longer a 1-800 number, but every band has inscribed on it a, a, a website, www.reportband.gov, where hunters can navigate to. It's really user-friendly to enter the information on the band, and then nine times out of ten, they get the information on the bird back right then and there. Cool. All right, so from from your experience, do you have an awesome story that you could share with us about a, I don't know, like a, a duck that flew from the North Pole to the South Pole every year, or you know what I mean, just a, a huge migration oh, pattern? yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is very remarkable what we see. Um, <clears throat> we see Canada geese here in Iowa that are um, survive upwards of 20, 26 years or more. Oh, wow. Um, I'm trying to think about movement stories. Because we, what we, one of the things very interesting that we learn is that we're actually learning that a lot of our Canada geese some of the largest migrations they make are actually occurring during the summer months okay. where these birds are leaving Iowa at the end of May and they're traveling all the way north to far northern Canada, spending the summer up there, and then they come back in September. And that's something we probably would never know about if it wasn't for banding data as well. Is that because um, their, their trips are smaller? And what I mean by that, like it's a day trip as opposed to just huge floods, it's more sporadic migration back north, or is it uh, as opposed to, you know, when when I think of migration, you know, like you said, I don't think of everybody going north. I think of everybody yeah. going south. Yeah. Well, it's something interesting that temperate breeding geese, particularly um, juvenile birds, so so Canada geese, temper breeding Canada geese don't become sexually mature until they're three or more years old. So a lot of what these birds who are moving north in the summers, they're the one-year-olds, two-year-olds, to some degree the three-year-olds, who weren't able to successfully nest here in Iowa. At some point in late May, early June, it's really interesting how you know how they learn this, but they decide they're going to move north to these big, large wetlands up in um in the boreal forest region north in the in the subarctic that have abundant resources that time of the year and abundant daylight and they go up there and they lose their flight feathers they spend the summer up there they molt regrow their flight feathers and then they return so um i i guess it's it's really interesting i'm, I'm struggling to come up with an exact uh an easily defined reason as to why why they do that, but um, it does differ from their southward migration in in the fall and winter. Right. Is it uh, is that because it is these, the the number heading south is more generalized into a condensed area? Well, um, I would say. Perhaps habitat is more limiting to the south, but it also Canada geese are um, they're pretty hardy, and they have really they 
some segment of the population basically stitched out the winter here in Iowa. Um, What we're learning is that more of our geese migrate than maybe we know, and there seems to be maybe some different patterns where northern Iowa geese are perhaps more likely to migrate than central Iowa geese. But we also see central Iowa geese, some of those birds seem to choose to to hold tight, even if it means they're going to starve, whereas some of them do push south to farther states, but they really don't go much farther south than central Missouri. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, you guys focus on three um, three species uh, in Iowa as far as banding is concerned. Um, I kind of want to flip back to Iowa here and talk about the overall um, – you know, the overall, I guess, state of the union uh, of waterfowl in the state of Iowa. Sure. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, just kind of kind of fill us in, talk to, uh, talk to us about, um, you know, how the species are doing, how the, especially the, the huntable species, you know, that the ones that everybody mm-hmm. wants to go out and, uh, and shoot every year and talk about maybe the habitat and how it's performing uh, to hold the numbers or, or whatever, whatever you know about the, the state of the union in Iowa. Okay. All right. Well, I'll just, just a brief historical context, you know, Iowa was, was historically had a, large amount of wetlands. Of course, we've got the Mississippi on the east side of the state and the Missouri River on the west side. Both of those were really significant um, wetland resources for migratory birds. And here in the north-central part of the state, we had the southern extent of the prairie pothole region with some of the highest densities of wetlands and um, therefore breeding breeding and migratory um, waterfowl were found here in Iowa. Unfortunately, with colonization, um, we've seen a drastic loss of wetlands in our state. Over 95% of wetlands have been lost. Um, So for wetland obligate species such as waterfowl, that is a significant challenge. Now, most of that loss happened the turn of the century, through about 1950, but it still is an ongoing challenge and something that our agency is working on on a daily basis. And and really, um, that is the kind of work that our agency does the best, I would say. Is that is that so, because of farming practices? Largely, I mean, Iowa is largely a an agricultural state. So yes, you know, here especially here in the Prairie Poplar region, almost all the wetland loss has been due to um, agriculture, but also, you know, you look at the Missouri River. That used to be a huge braided river system with a network of abundant wetlands that would have been just primo waterfowl habitat, and that has been channelized to be basically a drainage ditch for, um, and also for, uh, for navigation purposes and for flood control purposes. Yeah. So, um, and some degree of loss to development. But the, the good thing is that um, with loss due to agriculture is that, and oftentimes those wetlands are still seasonally available, and there also are, there is an opportunity for restoration in the future as well. And of course, you know, you're never going to restore all of Iowa, but is there a way to work with producers 
to take land that is not um, not profitable or not productive or is ecologically sensitive and, and restore that to um, wetlands that would be beneficial for both water quality and for wildlife species. I think that is really future, an opportunity for the future. Awesome. Awesome. So um, have have we seen a decline or uh, an increase over the years due to, you know, let's say you mentioned at the turn of the century, we lost a lot of wetlands, but have, uh, have we seen like a rebound since then or a rebound in species coming back to Iowa or have we seen a big loss anywhere of species um, not having the available wetlands over the years? Sure. I would say as a whole, the resilient, many of these species have been very resilient. Canada geese would be an example. So Canada geese were extirpated from the state from, let's say, 1904 through 1964. And by extirpated, I mean there were no breeding pairs of Canada geese within the state of Iowa. Now contrast that with today, and we believe we have a breeding population of about 85,000 birds in our state. And Canada geese, depending on the year, are often the most highly harvested, the most commonly harvested species of waterfowl. So that is a real success story. So 1960s um, there are other... had no, yep, no, it... wow, that doesn't seem like too long ago. Well, it was quite remarkable. At that time, the only geese that were harvested in Iowa were migrant geese, geese that would occasionally pass through in the fall and the spring. And it was, it was remarkable, noteworthy, just to see a flock of migrating geese. And if you were lucky enough to harvest one, that was that was really a big deal. Right. So yeah, that is just a huge comeback restoration. These are the good old days for Canada goose hunting in Iowa right now. Yeah. Um, so that's probably not so that, just Iowa that was you know like obviously you guys did something or you know the the state of Iowa kind of rebounded and, and had to have the habitat to support this uh, this influx, but. Uh, other states, I have a feeling, had to be uh, participants in that as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, that is a similar story across much of the Mississippi flyway and across much of the continental U.S. And uh, a lot of states worked together to um, both constrain and to regulate harvest opportunity to allow the remnant populations to um, restore. And then there's also a lot of, of movement of birds to bring them back um, to where they were once native to. Here in Iowa, we actually had 14 sites where where we had pinioned wild birds, meaning they couldn't fly, that would then raise a generation of um, young that were capable of flight. And then those birds became the basis of Iowa's population here today. So it was a lot of work by a lot of different parties to produce the robust Canada goose population we we enjoy today that's awesome so uh any other uh success stories um or maybe at at a local or uh, a county level in Iowa that uh we've really seen some big strides in i guess uh improving the habitat or rebounding habitat sure. or uh maybe a, a species that we're not so familiar with okay yeah so at a habitat scale I would point to the prairie pothole region of Iowa, um, particularly the region that I'm, my office is located in up and around Clear Lake and then also the region around Spirit Lake, Iowa, but throughout the prairie pothole region, which is 
basically a thumbs a thumb um, outline of north central Iowa down to about the south of Ames um, from Worth County would be the northeasternmost county. Dickinson County would be the, the northwest um, county down all the way to probably about Story County or so. So within that region, it was the southern extent of the Prairie Pothole region, and there is extensive wetland loss, still is extensive wetland loss, but within that region, the Iowa DNR and the Fish and Wildlife Service have worked with partners to restore a significant number of wetlands um, up up within my region here, there are now thousands of acres of what are called waterfowl protection production areas. Waterfowl production areas are um, federally owned easements that in this case are primarily managed by the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. They're open to public hunting, but the purpose is to, as their name would suggest, produce waterfowl. So there are now thousands of these acres on the ground. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but over the last 30 years, this has been a real success story here in Iowa. And these these properties not only produce waterfowl, they produce a lot of other um, a lot of other species of wildlife. Provide a lot of recreation opportunity as well. Man, that's awesome. Um, some species that that maybe are a little bit off the radar. Um, we do see kind of similar to Canada geese, but with with fewer fewer um, restoration efforts, we, we're seeing increasing numbers of sandhill cranes okay. here in Iowa. And we also are, the Iowa DNR has had a um, long history of restoring trumpeter swans. And we now have about 50 nesting pairs of trumpeter swans within the state. So those are maybe less less common species that we're hopeful are um, on their way to recovery as well. Yeah, that's uh, funny you say that because I was deer hunting this uh, fall, and I, w- I drive by this pond every afternoon, you know, before I go into uh, into the, the timber, and uh, I just always look at this pond. There's always maybe a, a couple geese on it or a couple ducks or whatever, and then one day I came and there was a big white two actually two big white swans. And this was in Henry County, Iowa. And and I was just like, that's something that's pretty rare. You don't see that every day. And typically if it's a swan, it is a, uh, it's a, you know, a pet. It's been clipped and it doesn't go anywhere. It's just like a farm pet. You know what I mean? But it was gone. You know, the next day it was gone. And uh, I I thought that was really cool to see because it, like you said, it's something that you don't see every day. Yeah, trumpeter swan populations are doing are doing very well. They're the largest species of waterfowl in continental U.S. and I think actually globally. So they are they're a big white bird with a lot of personality, and people get a lot of enjoyment out of them. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what about some of the other uh, species? Because I know Iowa has. I mean, uh, there's several birds that you can hunt. You know, you can hunt snow geese. You can hunt. Um, uh, Canadians, you can hunt uh, mallards, you can hunt wood ducks, you can hunt teal. Um, are there any other species out there that uh, are, are very rare, but we have hunting seasons on? Well, um, generally speaking, hunting seasons do not occur on rare species. Generally speaking, you know, 
um, from a conservation perspective, hunting seasons occur on more abundant abundant species that are abundant and have robust populations. But you know there are some some um, you know I I would say species such as um, we do have rail hunting seasons in Iowa. Rails are not they're they're secretive birds. There's a lot of them, but we really don't know a whole lot about them. They're pretty transient through Iowa. They do breed here, but they're often gone by October. Um, and if you're not out looking for them, listening for them, you'd probably never know they're here. They're they're little brown, um, nondescript birds. Um, so that that might be a species that that are less common. Our is top that, three most common. Oh, go ahead. Is that like a duck? No, rails are not. They are um, they are a webless species, so they don't have webbed foot. They don't really paddle around. They're a um, a small bird about the size of your hand with a long, narrow bill, and they live in emergent vegetation around wetlands and okay. primarily feed on insects. Um, they're really a fascinating, very neat little bird. Um, very challenging to study and to know a lot about. Some of the, some species are very abundant. Some species are relatively rare. Um, they migrate at night, so you kind of rarely rarely see them out and about flying around. But but they're out there uh, living life to the fullest in, in <laughs> wetlands with emergent vegetation. Do they do they pretty much let you walk right up to them before they take off? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I Their know, first I inclination is going to hold tight. Yeah. Yep. I, know, I uh, every year uh, walking through a CRP field along a creek or something like that, I'll I'll bump a couple of them, and uh, yep. they are they are a funky yep. looking animal, but they're it's it's always yep. cool cool to see them. Yeah. All yeah. Right. All right. So let's talk about um, this. How Iowa determines, you know, because we have different zones in Iowa, right? We got the north zone and the south zone, um, and then. I want to I want to know how the research that you guys do every year dictates the zones and the seasons for uh, for birds. Sure. So first thing to realize is we don't get to just design a season that works best for Iowa and only for Iowa because these birds are the jurisdiction of the Fish and Wildlife Service. The Fish and Wildlife Service sets what we call frameworks, so the outside limits that states must choose select seasons within at a flyway level. So all the states within the Mississippi flyway have pretty much the same options that they must fall within. So here, under the current conditions, that means states must choose a duck season not to exceed 60 days, a goose season not to exceed 107 days, with subsequent bag limits. So states have the ability to choose roughly within September 1st, or excuse me, September 20th through the last day in January, January 31st, states may use up to uh, 60 days to hunt ducks and then have to select from a series of three or four configurations as to how you set your season. And that is dependent upon your zones. If states are going to use zones, you can have up to three zones, but only have a two-segment duck season in those zones. So that's what Iowa has traditionally chosen. So for our duck season, 
we have three zones, and within those zones, we have a split. So we close the duct season partway through, so we have two segments of the duct season to use our 60 days. Okay. We, we use information we collect at an Iowa scale to try to select the 60 days that are going to be most productive for Iowa hunters because the challenge is Iowa's a mid-latitude state. So it's very difficult to predict when these birds are going to, these migratory birds are going to be passing through. Probably the majority of ducks harvested in Iowa are produced north of us, and they well, most of them winter south of us. So we have to choose sometime between September 24th and January 31st when to have our seasons. So we use a variety of information. We have a waterfowl migration survey. We have a hunter opinion survey. Um, we look at harvest data where hunters are reporting when did they hunt and what did they harvest um, to, to select both those zones and the season dates within those zones. Yeah. So every time I, I, I think of uh, a state or a, a federal run office trying to involve the people, right? You guys have hard, hard evidence, you have research, you have data to help you make the decisions. Then you reach out and you ask some guy who just ducks hunt, duck hunts his opinion on when, you know, things should happen and what bag limits should be, who has no data, who has, you know, just, just a guy who bought a hunting license, basically. How hard is it to weed out what some, some nobody, basically, you know, his opinion based off of uh, what he sees on his pond every year versus a guy who can intelligently give you information uh, and accurate information about what's going on in the, in the blind every, every year? Well, it's a, re- it's a real challenge because we, um, like you say, we work very hard to collect objective data that we believe is reliable, but also as a state agency, we are, we are obligated to be responsive to our stakeholders. And in this case, the primary stakeholder are duck hunters. And duck season dates are something that there's a wide array of opinions on. In fact, our data show there is a wider range of interest than we have days to allocate. So how we try to handle that is twofold. One, we conduct a, uh, a hunter survey where we randomly select, but systematically, but there's a random component, just like you would sample a population. We sample our population of hunters to quantify their opinion. So we, we can say, okay, Iowa has 27,000 hunters. We believe 60% of these 27,000 hunters, this is their opinion. We believe these season dates would satisfy 80% of hunters. But we also have a process where we both solicit and accept unsolicited opinions on seasons. And this is where it can get a little controversial and people can get... Um, pretty passionate about this. So we have a series of um, public meetings where we go out and we share with hunters the information that we have and the direction that we're considering. And then we also um, will solicit 
will accept hunter feedback at those meetings, but we also um, have periods of formal public comment where hunters can submit their opinions on the very specific proposal um, that we are that we have set forth, and we are obligated to review those comments before we make a final decision. And if there is comments significantly supporting one direction over the other, um, we the I would say the Natural Resource Commission has the discretion to amend the proposal uh, as appropriate. So, what you hit on is a real it's a real challenge because there is a lot of passion and a lot of varied opinions out there. But it also is important for us to hear from our stakeholders and to try to um, try to incorporate that feedback in a way that's going to um, improve the season dates and and but ensure that they are um, they're biologically appropriate and that they allow for a wide range of of um, hunting styles and methods. Yeah. All right. So you you ha- that just sounds like f- frustrating work at times. Um you know, I I I bet you love your job, but what is this one of the most frustrating parts of it? I would say it is a challenge. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. But but you know, th- this is a challenge not just here in Iowa. It's a challenge. If you want to be a state waterfowl biologist, this is a big part of the job. Yeah. And um, in some cases, you know, you have a lot of, you can have some good conversations with people who are very knowledgeable, very respectful of the process. I would say when it is frustrating or or disappointing is when people are not respectful or are um, overly, overly emotional about the subject and and what I struggle with is when somebody is really advocating what works best for them and is not at all acknowledging the uh, greater good for the resource and or for the wide array of other hunters who purchase a hunting license just like them to utilize this public resource. Yeah, absolutely. And that's awesome. Uh, I I think that as long as the, the hunter, the, the hunting license buyer, has a voice that's just great i mean i think a lot of times people voice their opinions without any uh data or information and then when you guys uh give them an opportunity and you know it's just not an opportunity for them to voice their opinion but an opportunity for you guys to show that the hard data to them it might change some minds a little bit or maybe you guys are seeing something that uh that you miss or you know there might be a, a mutual handshake there that allows a change to happen that's beneficial for both parties yeah when when i think in a lot of these cases we can really have a, a two-way conversation that both parties gain mutual respect and understanding from and that's that's really a productive conversation yeah that's awesome Okay, so uh, the other thing that I found curious um, on this uh, waterfowl hunting seasons 2021 to 2025 report that you sent me um, that uh, you and your department kind of put together is the the change of the hunting zones throughout the year, uh, throughout the years. 
right? Uh, the first one is like 1983 to 1986, and it shows a red line. That's the north zone and the south zone. What specific research went into the changing of the of that red line? Uh, you know, the, the border between the north zone and the south zone throughout the years. Well, a lot of that is based off of um, well, well, three primary things. The first is the waterfowl migration chronology. So that is a really important survey and piece of information we have in Iowa, where Iowa DNR staff, since basically since the 1960s, have been going out to waterfowl refuges within their respective areas and counting the ducks and geese present there on a weekly basis from early September through the first week of January. So we know that waterfowl migration is inherently variable every year, like I was explaining before the challenges of the mid-latitude state. But the best way to predict what's going to happen is to have information over a long time series. So we know what has happened in the past, and we know that next year will be a little different, but you know, it'll probably be within, within reason what has happened over the last 30 years for sure, but probably more similar to what has happened over the last 10 to 15 years. So we have that survey to guide uh, our hunting season dates. It's really critical. We also have harvest information where we can monitor when hunters are harvesting birds throughout the state. Um, and then also participation when are hunters out there hunting? More recently, over the past 15 years, we've been doing a waterfowl hunter survey where we assess hunter opinions. So we take all these things into consideration and can look to see, hey, look, you know, it does make sense both biologically and socially that northern Iowa, Winnebago County, has a slightly different migration chronology than in Appanoose County in south-central Iowa. So their Dutch season dates should be a little different. And we see that reflected in the, um, the timing of, of harvest, the species that are harvested. And we often see that reflected in hunter opinion as well. So those are the big sources of information that we use to inform the selection of waterfowl hunting zones. Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm flipping through this, uh, you know, this report that you you guys have. And first off, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning this report. If someone wants to get this report or uh, find it and uh, and uh, take a look through it, is it available to everybody? Yes, that was a report or a presentation that occurred at five public meetings in October. And if, if hunters want to reach out, they certainly, I'd be happy to share it, that, uh, that document with them as well. Okay. How do, how do, how do we get a hold of you or? Yep. My email is Orin, O-R-R-I-N dot Jones, J-O-N-E-S at dnr.iowa.gov. Okay, cool. All right. The next. And there is some information on our um, DNR webpage as well. I'm not sure if the history of the zone boundaries is on there. Uh, but they're off. That's a good place to look as well. Cool. All right. So I want to talk long-term, short-term here um, about uh, waterfowl in the state of Iowa. Um, are there 
going to be any big changes coming in the next couple years to maybe regulations, bag limits, um, you know, the zones or, um, you know, any, any interesting research that you guys are going to be doing uh, over the short term and, and then, you know, like let's say uh, three, three years and then maybe 10 years out? Sure. Okay. So we are proposing to reconfigure our waterfowl hunting zones for 2021 through 2025. So we're going through the administrative process of doing that now. So that'll be presented at the Natural Resource Commission in January of 2020. For the 2020 hunting season, really the only change that I can think of off the top of my head is that the scoff bag limit is going to be reduced. It's going to be a split season where the first 15 days we're going to have a one-bird bag limit, and the um, final 45 days of the season will be a two-bird bag limit. Um, as I said, we'll, ha- we'll have we are proposing a modification of our zone boundaries for 2021 through 2025. We still are proposing though to have three zones with the two season two two segment season and also with a with a teal season. Um, we have some interesting goose research going on and we are uh, going to be reevaluating our Canada goose management plan over the next three years or so. I don't know whether that will result in in changes to our goose hunting season. Uh, we have the maximum number of days for hunting Canada geese that we have now, so really all we'd be talking about are changing changing bag limits. Um, but we got a lot of good information on that. Um, at a at a ten year scale, it's it's tough to predict because waterfowl hunting seasons are based upon the populations that are surveyed annually. So if we were to see large scale changes, for instance, if the northern prairies went into a drought and we saw a decline in duck populations, we could see um, shorter seasons if that was required. We we are in a liberal harvest package now, but there is there are other harvest packages such as um, a 45-day season or a 30 30-day season. Now, we've been very fortunate over the past 15 years. We've had a liberal duck hunting season because populations have been strong. But if we were over the next 10 years or so to see um, reduced populations, that might result in a reduced hunting season. I can't. We can't predict that right now, but it is within the range of, of possibilities. Awesome. It's awesome that uh, I just I just love the data and the research that goes into decision making uh, with anything anything really, whether it's uh, how I unload my dishwasher or how you guys uh, you know determine what uh, zones are going to be and what um, you know. And I, I I love how the more data that you guys get helps you refine uh, how you approach, you know, the the zones or the bag limits and the dates and, and all that stuff. So um, huge shout out to uh, you guys in the entire uh, Department of Natural Resources here in Iowa. Um, is As we wind down here, is there anything interesting, anything else that's interesting or um, exciting that might be coming up for uh, – waterfowl hunters to uh, keep an eye out here in Iowa? Oh, well, um, 
our top three species harvested are probably Canada geese, blue-winged teal, mallards, and wood ducks. We spend a lot of time and effort monitoring those species. They seem to be doing very well um, in terms of Canada geese. Now, now are the good old days, so get out there and take advantage of that one wonderful resource. Wood ducks seem to be uh, seem to be doing well. That they had a had a good year this past year. Um, blue-winged teal. If you haven't tried the teal season yet, that's a new season we've had over the last five years or so. It's a great opportunity to get out and take advantage of that abundant resource in early September. Um, and then, of course, if you're, for most duck hunters, the green-headed duck mallards are um, the most sought-after bird in the bag, and, and we're going to continue to do what we can to add to that population and, and manage manage our wetlands to attract and hold those birds as well. Well, that's exciting. It sounds like overall the uh, the State of the Union uh, is a positive one for uh, the state of Iowa, and uh, I just want to say thanks, Warren, for coming on the podcast and uh, dropping some knowledge bombs on us today. Uh, if people have any questions or want to ask maybe uh, their local biologist or someone within their region of the state uh, more questions or they, they want to give information or uh, be more involved in maybe habitat management or volunteering or whatever, where should where should they go in, in, and look for that information or, or that, that particular person? Sure. So... I would probably start at, with the, um, the DNR's webpage and search for the Wildlife Bureau. And the Wildlife Bureau is divided up into various districts and subunits where there will be local staff responsible for managing wildlife habitat within your neck of the woods. So the, um, I'd say the DNR website and then probably search Wildlife Bureau contacts. You can often find the name and the number of the wildlife biologist in your county in your regions and they are probably one of the best starting points they're very knowledgeable and um, are out there conducting conducting wildlife management in your backyard well Oren, thanks for your time really appreciate you uh coming on the show today and uh we'll talk to you again okay thank you dan happy to do it